Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens, strength coach at Strength Guild, powerlifter, Island Games athlete. That's about it. All right, we have... uh, News backing up on us. Uh, Phil, I don't know if maybe after the break we can also look at the forums and see what's going on there. Uh, One thing I know from the forums is the haiku contest. I think it's gone on long enough. Let me read everybody a couple, and then maybe after we're done recording today, Phil and I can can choose a winner. What will the winner get? Um, I still have some of those Arnold T-shirts that you gave me, Phil. (laughs) Okay. Um, If somebody submitted a haiku and already has one, maybe they want a button. I've got some uh, keychains and buttons that I made a a couple of years ago. Um, You know, that sort of thing. Uh, Let's take a look at some of these. This first one is from email. This is Joe. Oh, and by the way, the example that I gave was sort of an epic Conan-esque kind of haiku. But the ones that were submitted were mostly about us, (laughs) which Mm. was funny, just kind of straightforward this is from joe i think he's describing each of us of course tissue assassin kiteboarding enthusiast gnarled old oak tree so that was from (laughs) joe thank you joe um there's another one on email i can't find now so it's my fault here's a couple from the forums uh from gabby wake every morning Drink coffee and hit the gym. Listen to the show. That's pretty good. Uh, Then Sean uh, chimes in and says, how about Iron Radio? Lonnie, Mike, and Phil are cool. We miss the fortress. (laughs) So thank you, Sean. Um, Here's one from Matt. Straps, wraps, chalk, and bag. Will the squat rack be open? Time to punch the clock. So that was a good one, Matt. Uh, One more from Michael. (laughs) Brown stain on sweatpants. Hope was there before starting. Heavy squat training. A little more colorful one from Michael. Uh, So we will take a look at these. Uh, If I have enough shirts and and buttons or something, I can just send them out. Um, So watch for an email. I guess what I'm saying, everybody. Watch, watch for um, an email from me, uh, or if you did this through the forums and I don't have your email, then I can just contact you through the forums, and we'll give you some cool prizes. There you go. All right. Um, let's get into some news. We have, I guess I would just say hormone, food, and muscle news. So it's sort of an odd mix, and I will get... Um, the in-the-trenches approach from Phil on each one of these. This, this first one is bad news, I guess, uh, for men, and especially, I would think, people that are extra male, if you know what I mean, with um, you know pharmaceutical levels of androgens. And this has really been a roller coaster. When COVID first happened, it looked like low testosterone levels could be bad. Uh, and then it got revised sort of to, well, high levels could also be bad as far as how much you would suffer from 
COVID-19. Now it's sort of swung more decidedly toward high testosterone is bad. <laughs> so, again, kind of bad news for people who lift and normally embrace testosterone. But it says hormone drugs may disarm COVID-19 spike protein. Uh, a new Penn Medicine study shows how anti-androgen drugs, anti-androgen drugs, disrupt key receptors required for viral invasion of cells. So this is through labmanager.com uh, in the University of Pennsylvania. It says there's a new preclinical study. So uh, I believe it's in mice, hence the preclinical, from the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania and published online in Cells Presses Eye Science, it looks like. It says researchers show how two receptors known as ACE2, and we've heard about that one before as a way that the virus gets into cells, ACE2 and TMPRSS2 are regulated by the androgen hormone and used by SARS-CoV-2, right, uh, to gain entry into host cells, blocking the receptors with clinically proven anti-androgens like Carnostat, prevented viral entry and replication in lab studies. Uh, it says this supports data showing increased mortality and severity of disease among men compared to women who, of course, have much lower levels of androgen, they're providing some of the first evidence, and again, I believe it's rodents here, uh, that blocking androgens could save your butt. Um, it says, quote, we also show that the SARS-CoV-2 spike relies on these two receptors to impale and enter cells, and they can be blocked with existing drugs. If you stop viral entry, you reduce the viral load and disease progression. So Carnostat is a drug approved for use in Japan, anti-androgen. says there are other anti-androgen therapies, uh, and this kind of androgen deprivation therapy, uh, currently used to treat things like prostate cancer, as you might guess, right? You don't want to fuel that kind of cancer, sex-related cancer. Carnostat blocked the priming of the spike protein for entry into cells. Anti-androgen therapy used to treat prostate cancer also blocked viruses' entry into lung and into prostate cells. So our data provides strong rationale for future clinical evaluations. It says, in March, researchers from Brazil reported preliminary results of 600 hospitalized patients, so people in this case, uh, in a clinical trial investigating a new anti-androgen therapy for treating COVID-19. The drug reduced mortality risk by 92%. Uh, and it shortened the median hospital stay by nine days. So when you see results that are that robust, it's, you know, it's pretty convincing, actually. So it looks like we have rodent and people data that uh, you could take your anti-androgen and be, and be better. Now, first, I was going to make a crack to you, Phil, about, you know... <laughs> Are you going to line up for the anti-androgen mm. therapy? I mean, no man, especially mm -hmm. lifter, wants to think about that. I wouldn't think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm going to I'm going to take my chances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, well, I'm vaccinated, so mm -hmm. uh, I'd rather go that route, you know, than yeah. block my androgen levels. Now, the truth is, this could only be for a very short period of time. Right, I don't think they put you on anti-androgens for long enough to do much damage to your muscle mass or yeah. or whatever else. So years, yeah, <laughs> yeah, months to years. I don't think that's going to happen. Right, so um, you know, interesting stuff though, gender-related stuff. So if you're a very high testosterone person listening to the show, um, I don't know. You might want to be cautious. You know, seek out that vaccine. Go some other route. Uh, so this doesn't have to <laughs> happen to you. So that was sort of the bad news. Here's a, a piece from the food world. The 2021 Dirty Dozen list came out. And if you're not familiar with this, everybody, this is a list of foods that are, you know, I guess you could say contaminated with pesticides uh, and you might want to be careful with. But. This was from the Institute of Food Technologist here. A couple of scientists wrote this. It says, the 2021 Dirty Dozen list is out, but do you understand the science? 
Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's My Plate Initiative. And if you're not familiar, everybody, My Plate replaced the old food pyramid. We don't have a pyramid anymore. Um, but it basically says make half your plate fruits and vegetables. Well, I'm down with that. Like, I mean, how bodybuilders have eaten like that for many, many years, right? So you have half your plate is basically chicken breast, and the other half is some kind of vegetable. Um, but it says pesticide residues could undermine the my plate messaging because people, you know, are worried about it. Since 1995, the Environmental Working Group, the EWG, which is a Washington, D.C.-based environmental advocacy organization, has released its Shopper's Guide to Pesticides in Produce. And this guide contains a notorious dirty dozen. But these researchers are questioning this consumer group. Uh, basically, they're, they're saying the amount of foods that you consume, uh, even of these more pesticide risky foods, the amount you consume probably isn't enough to matter. So it says rather than focusing on just pesticide detection rates, we actually looked at the levels that a person would consume. Um, this allowed them to develop estimates of actual consumer exposure and compare it to the reference doses, you know, of these p pesticides. What did they find? Consumer exposure to pesticides most frequently detected in the Dirty Dozen uh, was extremely low and well below the RFDs, right, that reference dose that could be problematic in all cases. In 75% of pesticide and co uh, commodity combinations, exposure estimates were below 0.01% of the RFD, representing exposure at least 1 million times lower, 1 million times lower uh, that do not show any toxicological effect in animals. So take-home message from this one, I think, is, uh, you know, don't sweat it. Uh, there's been times where there are certain fruits and veg that I eat quite a bit of, and I'm like, yeah, these are notorious pesticide ones, like apples, uh, colored bell peppers. I like that stuff. And I would think, you know, should I get some fruit scrub wash or something? Uh, I don't want to overdo it. Here's what it says. Apples. Uh, eaten daily by children, 98% of conventional apples had pesticides. So that's what the Dirty Dozen is going to kind of point to, that 98% of apples have pesticides. What did th these researchers find? Uh, consumer exposure to the 10 most frequently detected pesticides on apples was between 20,000 and 30 million times lower uh, than doses that don't affect lab animals in long-term studies. So you, you can see where you have to understand the science a little bit here. Oh, my God, apples have some pesticides, but then 20,000 to 30 million times lower than problematic. Yeah. Uh, the other one here is, uh, and I eat quite a bit of these too, strawberries. The Dirty Dozen points to a delicious snack for kids. Some strawberries had as many as 13 different pesticides. So, again, pointing to strawberries, 13 different pesticides. These researchers said strawberries. Consumer exposure to the 10 most frequently detected pesticides on strawberries was between 800,000 and 6 million times lower than doses that don't affect lab animals in long-term studies. So it says, additionally, our research indicated that substitution of organic forms of the 12 commodities, right, these at-risk uh, produce things, uh, did not result in any measurable consumer health benefit. So the organic form, no measurable consumer health benefit. Uh, so basically they're kind of ripping on the pesticide messaging from some of these uh, consumer groups and saying, you really need to go look at what people are actually swallowing and not just what's on the surface of, of the veg. Cause it's probably not enough to matter. So the yeah. reference here is winter and colleagues journal of toxicology. So, Thank you, Carl Winter. I'm going to worry a little bit less about some things because you hear that all the time. You know, I see that all the time. Uh, and, you know, if people want to buy organic stuff and spend the extra money, that's fine. Maybe you're going to go from tiny traces to zero by doing that um, or near zero. But this looks like it's pretty much near zero anyway. So I appreciated this this thing. Now, Phil, do you, how, how much produce do you grow? Do you grow much or do you just grow the animals and you buy your produce? How does that work? No, we're getting ready to plant our gardens. So yeah. uh, we'll get those going here soon in uh, early May. Yeah. Do you so, spray? We plant quite a bit. No, we don't. We keep ours pretty much all organic. But I yeah. put up 
I put up raised beds, and that seems to help a ton. Oh, that's so, a good tip. So we put up like eight eight raised beds, and it's a lot easier to keep the weeds down and the pests down and things like that. So, yeah. And then our chickens tend to come out and eat the bugs. Like we've had, like the one we get all the time is zucchini beetles. I think they are. Okay. Our chickens will come eat them. So here you it's go. Kind of a. But then I have to watch my chickens because I'll get pissed off with them. We get like one year I had all these red ripe tomatoes, and I went out to pick them. And the chickens ate the bottoms out of all of them. Oh. <laughs> like they looked like great tomatoes, but they'd been jumping up and pecking straight from the bottom. And so I had like empty tomatoes. But uh, so then we start shooing the chickens away later in the year. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're going a little bit. And then I've got an orchard started. So we've got fruit trees growing. They should hopefully, I'm hoping this year we'll start to get some. Uh, what's the, the pears, I think, is going to be the first one. We've been trying to plant several. We quit planting anything that doesn't give back. So everything that we plant, we get back. Either nut tree, fruit tree, things like that. So, uh, yeah, we're slowly just building our own little food source. Yeah, that'd be one uh, way to avoid this issue. If you had like a gentleman's garden, I mean, not everybody's going to have a have property like you have, you know. But no, but I mean, like these raised beds take up no space. I make them in there six foot by three foot. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Anybody can put a couple of those in their backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're an apartment, then you're kind of screwed. But if you have any kind of yard. And it keeps things nice and neat, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, right on. My mom actually just bought one of those raised things, and she does live in a little apartment, you know. So, I mean, you could do it on a limited scale, I suppose. I will be curious to see what your uh, fruit trees look like because a lot of times if you look at an apple tree that's not been sprayed at all, they're miserable, you know, as yeah. far as like the plumpness and edibility of the fruit and stuff. Yeah. So. So we'll see. We'll see how they go. I mean – we got really good soil here. I'm lucky. I'm in an old floodplain, and we're up above it. So, oh yeah, our soil drain well, drains well, but uh, mm-hmm. we haven't had a problem growing growing much anything. So, yep. one thing about being in the Midwest, you know, you got good growing. But. Right on. Yep. Well, yeah. So, apples, celery, and strawberries are some of the things that these toxicology researchers are pointing to. I think it's just another example. You know, how I'm always kind of ripping on science journalists. They they grab the um, what do they call it? Yellow journalism or clickbait or whatever. They just they mm-hmm. love to publish stuff that gets the clicks. Everything's about the attention these days. I think instead of uh, quality and like uh, like these guys are saying, you got to look at the method. Sometimes you can't just listen to what the journalist says. You know, research finds this. Let me think for you and give you my my take on it. And maybe that consumer group wasn't giving the full full info. So we are. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I have several papers on the best way to train for size versus strength. Okay. Uh, now, the easy answer is going to be, well, do a little of each, you know. But uh, I want to – I'll tell you what. I'll do the, the big meta-analysis. This is a big review paper uh, before we go to break here today. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is from Vera and colleagues, and this is written in like one-point font here, so bear with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Effects of resistance training performed to failure or not to failure on strength, hypertrophy, and power output. So this is a big uh, review paper, so uh, meta-analysis, right, a study of other studies. This is the kind of stuff where, you know, we would say, like, Phil, you're not going to change the way you do things based on one new study. but. This one carries a little more weight, at least, because it's a combination of several studies, and then they analyze them all together. Here's what they say. The aim of this review was to summarize the evidence from longitudinal studies. So not just cross-sectional and observational, but like tracking people, you know, training studies. Mm -hmm. Um, Assessing the effects of resistance training performed to failure or not to failure. And again, on strength, hypertrophy, and power output. Three electronic databases were searched. Uh, they just say the subjects were adults. So we have to think about how highly trained some of our listeners might be, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But so adults, and they had to be in a program for six weeks or more. So six weeks, I, I wouldn't even really look at much, but yeah. especially for hypertrophy, for God's sake. Uh, but I think if they set the bar at like 12 weeks, which is probably where I would do it minimally, they, they're not – there may not be enough studies to look at. Yeah. So uh, 13 studies were included. 
No difference was found between a training to failure or not to failure on maximal strength in overall analysis. So it didn't seem to matter in the overall analysis. But then they go on to say, but greater strength increase was observed in the not to failure when you equalized for volume. So that's the thing that I think we often talk about. Like I'll say total dose. And Phil, you're the first person who kind of got me thinking along those lines, right? I'm like, oh, you dose training Mm -hmm. reps, like total reps. Who cares about the set scheme necessarily, right? You've got to think about the total volume. Yeah. Uh, And that's kind of what they're saying. Greater strength increases for the not to failure group when you equalize for total volume. Um, Yeah. Let's see. Resistance training performed to failure showed a greater increase in muscle hypertrophy than the not to failure group. So it might have been a little bit better for hypertrophy. And it says no difference was observed considering equalized volumes. Again, when you equalize for volume, a lot of this kind of washes out. Here's what they concluded from their big review of other studies. Resistance training not to failure may induce comparable or even greater improvements in maximal dynamic strength and power output, whereas no difference between training to failure or not to failure was observed for hypertrophy. Again, considering equalized dose, right, total volume. So my take home from this is, you know, maybe you don't go to failure for strength. Uh, Certainly you don't – you shouldn't feel obligated to – and as far as size, it's really your preference. You know, do you yeah. want to do more sets and to failure to get in your total reps or or not? And I think this is probably where people need a coach to kind of say, "Listen, I think you should do this many total reps." You know. Yeah. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on that, Phil? To failure or not to failure for size versus strength? I, I mean, I agree with the study, and we'll use it. We don't do a lot of training to failure, especially on our competition moves. Um. It's just one of those things. And there's numerous reasons for it. I mean, the benefit, the cost versus benefit, a lot of times is not the greatest, especially on like deadlift. Um, every once in a while, we'll pop off a hard set, you know. But uh, the other part is just mentally. If I've just had luck, if you know nothing but making a lift, like you go years and you've just never missed a lift, uh, that kind of ingrains in your head and you just forget how to miss you know when you come up and you get a confidence in you like there was a string and we've talked about it before on the show there was a string of lifting there like i never missed a deadlift rep for like three years and when i went to competition it was like okay i'm just gonna go do what i do i pick this thing up yeah i just had no doubt in my head And and that's a good 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 place to be in a competition um the minute you start you're approaching a bar and you have doubt in your head there's a real good chance you're gonna not make the lift uh so if you can get yourself to the point where that's just not in your vocabulary that can be a good thing and you can pull off things that maybe you're physically kind of not even ready for just because you will it up you know yeah so uh but then on the other hand you know uh, simple moves like curls pull downs you know blah 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 i think there's a place you know and that's but i mean those are also the moves again we're mainly like, I don't have anybody do one rep max bent over rows. You know, the reason we're doing all those things is an assistance move, and it's usually to build tissue and to keep us in place uh, and things like that. So uh, we'll do a lot of that. You know, I don't I don't mind it on that. Uh, ring rows, bent over rows, things like that. Just go punch out some hard freaking reps. You know, and I'll, I'll go to momentarily muscular failure on on all that stuff. You know, I'll just go as far as I can. Okay, I'm done. Everything's on fire. And yeah, time for a rest yeah. and another set. So, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. But, I mean, like me, I just competed three weeks ago. This will be my second squat session. And we'll do some higher rep stuff. Like last week, I punched off a set of 405 for 15. And uh, today we'll see if I can beat that. Damn. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's just a nice change of pace. You know, after I hadn't done more than two reps in weeks. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it was nice to get a change of pace and... You know, like one of my athletes was talking to me, one of my newer athletes, he did his first meet and he, his first squat session was last weekend too. And he texted me and he's like, man, there's just a difference between the soreness you get from reps and weight. And, uh, 
and he explained it exactly how it is. It's like the heavy stuff. It's like your joints and tendons ache. The yeah. lighter, high volume stuff, you know, start doing sets of ten plus, and it's just muscular pain. You know, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of fun uh, in a sadistic way. You know, it's kind of like, oh, that's I've been looking for that. You know, well, I do. You're walking. You're yeah. walking funny for a few days, right? And that's a it's a nice break as a as a strength athlete to to go to that for a while. You know, and oh, my joints don't hurt at all, but man, my muscles are rocked. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah. So we'll use it. I mean, I don't use a ton of, uh, like I said, I'll have lifters call it on a set of squats. Like uh, those are getting. I don't want complete failure. The the uh, the chances of injury are just just too big. Whereas if we're doing pull downs. What are you going to do? You're just going to not be able to pull it to your chin. Right. You know, you're so not going to get crushed by the bar. <laughs> There's a safety issue there, mm-hmm. you know, whereas if you go to total failure on a squat, oh, you, you know, knees might start caving back. There's just too much to go wrong. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it's curious here. They say resistance training to failure actually showed greater hypertrophy and at first, and then they kind of uh, equated it, like equalized the volume. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they mean by that, except that maybe they, when they let people go gung-ho – um, it, it was superior, but maybe just because they were getting in that few more reps, right? And if you just add a set to the not to fill your people, you know, they're going to get the same volume. It, it kind of comes back to that idea of total dose, total number of reps, you know, in, in the workout. Um, yeah. This also kind of backs up what bodybuilders have done over the years, right? Like in my experience, and Phil, you can tell me if yours has been different, but bodybuilding you remember the old magazines about trash your pecs and annihilate your quads and they're going for what you're saying that almost stinging muscle belly soreness mm-hmm. um, by going to failure and higher volumes and everything um but i i never got the impression from the power lifters that i've known that they're always gonna you know come on bro two more reps it's like no there's not yeah. two more reps you're supposed to stop at five and so you yeah. do your five sets of five or whatever yep yeah. yeah, that's what we'll break it up. But even last week, like I did four sets of three before I did that last set. So I still went by my thing of, and it's just because feeling good. So the last set, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, but we're gonna get in our, our kind of prescribed work first, uh, and then if it's feeling really good, okay, let's push this last set or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, there's almost a, a level-headed calculation that I see from powerlifters that I just don't see out of the unrestrained, <laughs> berserking, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bodybuilding crowd. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, and that's like on deadlifts. I mean, when we do, like, or when I do, it'll just be a it'll be a judgment call on like it's a deadlift day. Things are feeling good. Yeah, instead of going up, I'm just gonna let's see what I can do on this last set. I want to see how many times I can do 500. You know. Yeah. You know, we'll just kind of throw that in there. Yeah. Just for a change of pace. Compared so. to a lot of guys at your gym, this is impressive. But once I did that with uh, with 315 and I got 20 reps. Um, yeah. Once I did it with 405, uh, it was when I was young and at my my biggest. And I got 14. And I remember that number because I, I wanted 15. And I, I just yeah. – at some point, you just can't do it. You just can't go. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I thought, you know – that, that, in fact, that was my life best for the squat. Yeah. Just crazy yeah. stuff uh, with wraps and st- you know whatnot. But yeah, um, it is interesting though to look at the the op that even for size, you have an option. Like you don't have to go nuts, bro. You know, well, it makes sense. I mean, it it does make sense when you break it down. It's like three sets of ten, or just do thirty. Really, what's the difference at the end? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you're still getting that total work in. So, right. yeah, yeah, it really seems to be the um, what I'm reading. And we're going to look at another study here about different rep schemes after the break. But mm-hmm. it really seems to be, um, I think, what and I'm, you know, to be fair. Yes, I'm going to be biased on your behalf. But this is what so I first heard from you years ago, which is the total rep thing. It seems to the total volume thing is king, I think. When you look at all these different to failure, not to failure, um, three sets of ten versus ten sets of three, you look at all this stuff. It, it it kind of looks like yes, it differs on your goal, is it strength versus size? Yes, but it also you know it's unavoidable. You cannot design a workout and not consider that total dose. Yeah, and what I would love to see, and it'll never happen. You know, I've got an N of hundred, whatever it is, however many people I've been, you know, helping. 
I have to believe if there was a study done where, you know, let's say we had people do sets of 30 and we did six sets of five versus three sets of 10, I would guess the injury rate goes way down in the breaking it up into smaller manageable parts. Yeah. And never pushing it to that edge of the envelope. Um, and that's what I've seen. It's like we have – I uh, knock on wood, I have really low injury rates. And that's one thing we're going for. I mean, I don't – as a strength athlete, part of the king of it is, you know, being well at it is being able to do it for years. It takes a long time to get there. So yeah. if I'm pushing people to the limit all the time, they start breaking parts. You know? Right. And uh, maybe it takes a year longer to get where we're going, but at least we're not broken. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, well, well, you don't have to I endure like the within a given set, you don't have to endure the fatigue that could lead to some type of misfiring oh, or yes, misstep. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, so that's what I'd like to see. I mean, like I said, it'll probably never happen because it'd have to be a long term study with many people. But mm-hmm. there is something <laughs> that it kind. It, it's not so much about injury. Yeah, because that's not a very ethical. Let's push these guys until they tear something. Yeah. You know? Let's see who we can break. <laughs> yeah. But, so. yeah, I'll tell you what. After the break, we will talk about different uh, number of reps per set uh, in a study. Uh, again, these are these are spanking new. This one that I just we just discussed from Vera and colleagues. This is Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. April of this year. It's not even April yet. So <laughs> these guys are taking a good hard look at the failure thing. And I think, you know what, a lot of the guys that get into this, they probably are aware, certainly – you and I are of how for decades muscle magazines that was just what you did you just went to failure Arnold would even say you know it's the 10th 11th and 12th rep that separates the champion well that thinking's I think been modified a bit and maybe it's because of the power lifters and you know the strength coaches now saying well you know it's it's not that simple all right right, we'll go to break we'll come back and we'll dive into some more of this uh, science news Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text the uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it, do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio 
So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. It's Phil and Lonnie. Mike is at a conference, uh, and he said he might try to get us a little uh, five- or ten-minute clip. Uh, I think it's a neurology conference that he's at in Florida. So uh, if we dive back into this, this next paper sort of follows up a little bit on what we were talking about, not so much to failure or not to failure, but just different set and rep schemes. So this is from Tokyo, from Kubo and colleagues. This is, again, Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, uh, April of this year, and it's not April yet as we record this. So this is brand new stuff. The effects of four, eight, and 12 rep maximum resistance training protocols on muscle volume and strength. And again, I think just like with the failure or not failure – this isn't so much about that. This is just about how many reps in a set. How do you chop up your total dose? Uh, let's see. The purpose of this study was to determine skeletal muscle adaptations, both strength and hypertrophy, in response to volume-equated resistance training. So they are keeping an eye on that total number of reps, that total dose. 42 men were randomly assigned to four groups. The high-load, low-rep group so they did seven sets of four, okay? There was an intermediate group that did four sets of eight. So I guess the total reps are slightly different. That's 28 mm-hmm. in the first group and 32 here, but pretty close. And then they did the um, higher rep uh, group, which was 12 reps for three sets. Gotcha. Um, it says they looked uh, at the... Subjects before and after 10 weeks of training, and the training was twice a week. Uh, No significant differences were observed in the relative increase in muscle volume between the groups. So hypertrophy, if you will, didn't seem to matter Yeah, how you chopped it up. You could do the uh, heavy four reps in a set. You could do the moderate eight reps, or you could do the 12 rep sets. And again, I was just talking about how Arnold's talking about the 10th, 11th, 12th. I think, if anything, bodybuilders in the past, uh, they would probably gravitate more toward like 10 and 12 reps probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it says the relative increase in one RM, so now we get to the strength stuff, was significantly lower in the 12-rep group. So when you're doing three sets of 12, you're not going to get the one-rep max gains, the strength gains – like with the heavy low rep people. Um, that's probably not surprising, I guess. No, load um, matters. I mean, yeah. Um, it says the relative increase in one rep max was significantly correlated with muscle size uh, only in the 12 rep uh, group. So in other words, they built some size. They built an, a similar amount of size, the, the, the higher rep group. Um, and any increases they got in strength, which weren't as good, relied on their muscle mass. You know, so bigger engines big from the hypertrophy training, it did make them stronger. Interestingly, the four and eight rep group, the strength didn't seem to correlate with just muscle size. And that does sort of make sense to me if I'm reading this right, that you're probably going to get some neural adaptations. You know, when you're, when you're doing lower rep stuff um, – the strength isn't just going to come from the hypertrophy. You know, you're teaching your you know, motor units to fire that much better, if you will. Uh, these results suggest that the increase in muscle size is similar amongst these different set and rep schemes uh, when the training volume was equated, whereas the increase in muscle strength was lower if you want to go with the high rep protocols. What do you think? Yeah, I mean... I, I I totally agree. I mean, if you look at things like uh, just go back to the Tom Platts and uh, Doctor Squat. Oh, Fred Hatfield you know, competition. Yeah, Fred yeah. Hatfield. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see the difference. I mean, Fred was a lot stronger. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he was used to going with load. At a point, if you want to move maximum loads, you're going to have to move heavy weight. It's just part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you can't expect to do sets of ten and be good at singles. It just doesn't go that way. Like I'm exponentially better at even going from five to one there's a big jump for me just because i'm good at pushing through singles you know and that's what i've trained for yeah uh, 
so the load will drastically increase compared to like oh there's all those rep max calculators out there you know they don't work for me you know uh-huh. it's, i am much better at singles um so my jump up is, is is much greater than that just from all the practice you know i've gotten really good at moving heavy loads for one rep so right um but like i said there's a time and place and i we don't i don't even use the when we're in our volume phases like right now it's not to get stronger um it's to let us heal up it's to give our tendons and joints a break it's to hopefully build some muscle that then later we can you know transition into a strength phase and tell that new tissue how to work so yes you know that's kind of what we do so Mm -hmm. and that phase depends on the person like i have a lot of people that just need to when you're new of course you just need to add a bunch of muscle mass you know, we need to do more volume. We just need to get tissue on you <laughs> all over the place. Yes. So, and then there's people like me that it's like, I have no interest in getting any bigger than I am. I spend a lot more time, lower rep, uh, lower rep, higher load. Yeah. So that's just where I'm living at now because I'm actually probably going to be getting smaller. So <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm just because age It's like, I can't stay at that big and expect to live to 70, you know? So, yes, no, agreed. You start thinking like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to keep doing this for a while. I want to be on the platform at 70. So if I'm going to do that, I better, you know, not be 270. Right. It's just part of part of life. Well, I think a lot of people, they just assume strength and size are endlessly parallel, you know, and it's what this is suggesting is what we've said for a long time. And I know other people have, too. This isn't like I'm Mm -hmm. not trying to take credit on our behalf, but that size and strength uncouples a little where you can yes. see these power lifters. They're not like you said, massive quads and adductors like Tom Platts. And yet they're mm-hmm. stronger than Tom Platts. Yes. Or Olympic weightlifters and things, you know, that are just, they're exceptionally strong in the, you know, concentric portion of the move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So no, I won't name any names, but we've had numerous people visit the gym and people like, and come in for friendly competitions. You know, other higher level people and they pull up and get out of the car like, Phil, you're in trouble. I was like, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because this, here comes this dude that's just jacked. And uh, I'm not worried. You know, I train for this. You know, <laughs> they don't. And we'll get into a rip, uh, competition as, as far as like heavier loads. And there I go. You know, that's my job. That's what I do. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, you're seeing it more and more in strength sports now because like, for some reason, staying in lighter weight classes has become very popular. And you're seeing some, man, people that are like ants, you know, pulling 900 at 198. And, right. Oh, crap. Exactly. You know? So Yes, exactly. Yeah. The first time that really hit me, I walked into the, the powerlifting room in, in the back of Bodybuilder's Gym there in Akron where, where I train. And you know what? I'm, now that I'm vaccinated, I'm, I'm heading back. But yeah. I saw a guy. Um, and he's always back there, you know, training with the powerlifting guys. And this guy, he's just downright thin. Um, yeah. Like his legs are slim. <laughs> and I watched him squat 405. It might have only been for like a triple or something. But I'm like, what? You know? Yeah. And it, yeah. you kind of get the idea. Yeah, there's a very serious neural component to this. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, there is. Um, yeah, there is. So. And I think most people just, they think strength and size. And by the way, I should point out in this, this – um, Tokyo paper from Kubo and colleagues in JSCR, it, um, you might say, well, how they control for the intensity. Well, when, when I say four, eight, or 12 reps, uh, I mean that's maxed. Like they're maxed. Mm-hmm. That, like when I say four reps, yes. they're probably around 90% or so. Yeah. If you look at those tables like you were talking about, Phil, yes, those tables fall apart with strength, you know, really strong or elite people. Um, but, the, you know, the rule of thumb, a lot of these, what percentage you're at, and I think it's a useful rule of thumb when I look at most people, but if you're, if you can get four reps before, you know, you're done, four reps mm-hmm. is about 90%, eight reps is around 80%, that's a good, just a good rule of thumb um, yeah. for, like, a, a lot of beginners and intermediates, at least. Um, yeah. So. Well, that's like, I remember back when we were both working for that other place, and, uh God, it was Chad Waterbury, I think. Waterbury came out with his article on doing 10 sets of three at 80%. 
And like Dave and Jim and everybody came on. Are you fucking nuts? We can't do that. <laughs> right. You know? That's like 800 pounds for 10 sets of three. Ain't happening, bro. Right. <laughs> you know, they break the mold. Yeah. Percentages go out the window at a certain point when you're like super strong. You know, you're a thousand pound squatter. Bro, I'm not doing sets and reps with 800. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. I don't mm. care who you are. So, uh, and that's just one thing you have to know as a coach. They are handy. Like I use those rep calculators and things all the time. But you start getting up to the higher echelons of strength, and yeah, I got to throw them out. No, you know, right. You have to make some adjustments. Like I can't expect, you know, one of a nine hundred pound squatter to do, you know, four sets of ten at eighty seventy percent. Yeah, it's not gonna happen. Right. Seven hundred pounds for the freaking four sets of ten. Right. You, at some uh, point, you have to think about the total gross weight on that bar. Yeah, yeah. you just do at a certain point. Yeah, but. Okay. Um, yeah, my take home from, from that Kubo paper, basically four to eight reps, probably best for a combo of strength and size, um, not 12, right? 12 mm-hmm. would be fine for hypertrophy is what they're yep. saying. Um, but you're probably getting, yeah, enhanced neural gains with the, you know, the four rep sets. Yeah. I mean, I can add this. I mean, one thing you can do if you're a high rep person to help it will lower your reps per set, but most of the time when people are doing 10 plus, they're holding back on reps to get 10. Like if I'm doing a set of 10 squats, I'm not going to, I'm going to push hard enough to get the work done. I'm going to conserve energy so I can do 10 reps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I try and train people to do even more doing, and that's another reason I use the you know complete dose usually instead of three sets of 10, I'll tell them 30, push as hard as possible on every rep. And I think then we can mix some high volume in and still get strength benefits. Because uh, you're, you're pushing harder than, you know, let's say I have you squatting 315 and we do a set of 10. Then, I, okay, so on this set, Lonnie, we're going to push every single rep as hard as you possibly can. You may only get six. Yes. Um, but your training effect from those six reps is greater than the one from 10. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because oh, you're, Totally. You're pushing maximally as hard as you freaking can against every single rep. You know, Phil. So you wear yourself out faster. I did. Um, I, I've told this story before, but when I used to work the front desk of a gym, um, I, it, was on a, it was like a, I don't know, a, a slow day. And I put 275 on the bar. I wanted something that I didn't have to warm up or anything. I just walked back there and do three pristine squeeze at the top, you know, just like yeah. focused mind and the muscle kinds of reps. And I did at the top of each hour, I did my triple back there. And the next day I couldn't walk, yeah. you know, yeah. because of the quality yeah. of those mm-hmm. brief rested separated yeah. sets, Yep. you know? Yep. All right. I, I got, we have one more here. And, um, like I said, maybe we can get some, uh, audio from Mike as well. This is about the eccentric phase. So this is Shibata and colleagues, uh, also Japanese paper. They looked at soccer players in this instance, so we got to keep that in mind. Uh, Effects of prolonging eccentric phase duration in the parallel back squat to momentary failure uh, and the effects on muscle cross-sectional area, squat one rep max, and performance tests. And again, this is university soccer players. So this study aimed to compare two squat training programs uh, repeated until momentary failure with different eccentric durations. And we had Mike, uh, or we had John Mike on um, ages ago, and this was one of his big things. Like, what's the best duration of your downward portion, you know, of your negatives? Uh, So they did two seconds down versus four seconds down. So... I would think the two seconds down, that's just about regular pace. Uh, But four seconds is, you know, dragging out the negative. So male university soccer players, these were young guys. They were 20 years old. They were were small. By our standards, they were small. They were 66 kilos. Um, And they randomly assigned them to two groups. So one was the concentric, you know, two seconds up, and eccentric, two seconds down. So 11 Mm -hmm. of those guys. And then they also did the two seconds up, four seconds down so a different 11 guys so they perform these parallel back squats twice a week for six weeks at 75 percent of their one rm 
uh, and again, to momentary failure for over three sets. So twice a week, three three sets, you know, twice a week. Uh, let's see. One repetition maximum increased more for the briefer eccentric. Now, that's interesting. So the, mm-hmm. the whole th- the rep is just smoother, I suppose, as, as opposed to dragging out the negative. Um, I don't know. I, I guess that's, that seems like an injustice to me. You figure if you're going to do mm-hmm. something like you said in the squat and you're going to slowly lower in the squat, you would think that extra time under tension might help. But again, we're talking about strength here. So maybe that mm-hmm. just interferes and it doesn't transfer well. Um, cross-sectional area, so when we talk about like mid-thigh, and counter-movement jump height increased similarly between the normal eccentric phase and the four-second eccentric phase. So my take-home from this is, I guess, don't prolong the negative for strength, uh, although it might be helpful for size or some of these other tests. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, again, it's like if I'm going to use, look for some extended time under tension, we're going to do it in the eccentric, not the concentric. So I might prescribe like a 4-1-0 tempo. Um, so we can keep that training, that concentric that's explosive. Like we're looking for as little time as possible on that part of the lift mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and get our time under tension under the eccentric. And that also can train you. Uh, you have somebody that's form is not spot on yet. Um, it can help with that. They're taking time and, okay, I need to get in the right position. And you have time there to feel it. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you can feel, okay, I'm pushing a little opposition here. So we're able to train that, that area of the lift. And uh, just fix errors. You know, you can't fix errors going fast. Um, just like any sport. You know, you learn how to play tennis. It's not just ingrained. Like if I went up against a tennis pro and I he, he hits a serve at me and I have to think what I'm going to do, I'm screwed. The ball's already passed. You know, we yes. need to get you automatic. You know what to do. Boom. Your body just knows it. And uh, by slowing things down, we can learn that. So, and then later on we can speed it up and you can do it in good form because you did, you know, know, a thousand mindful reps, you know, and now when we go mindless, that's what your body knows because we trained that. Um, And then we also got some, you know, a little bit of hypertrophy work while still working that speed that we need to to execute heavy lifts. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're executing heavy lifts, the only reason it's slow is because the intensity on the bar, the load is heavy. So yeah. at 100% load, I am pushing as hard and fast as possibly can. Right. It's moving slow because it's freaking heavy to me. Force velocity so, curve. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's just I can't make it move faster, guys. This is all I got. So I'm trying. But so, yeah, I think it's useful. I think tempo work is useful. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about but, that. It's, it's good to have these conversations. That, yeah, yeah, the four count negative, I do that on purpose a lot because, you know, like the haiku, tissue assassin, you know, I yes. want to get as sore as I can. And boy, that'll do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting that that can have usefulness in um, the feel and the skill of, of yeah. it all, you know, getting yep. in, in Slowing the right things position. down to, to just make sure you're in the right spot. So, right but, on. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's going to be about it then. Uh, we just had a lot of these things building up. But it's, it is fun to talk about failure, not failure, yeah. rep, rep schemes and all that sort of stuff. And, and this, you know, again, this is um, – I agree. When you know, you're like, I agree with this, I agree with that. A lot of this <laughs> stuff is sort of confirmational, you know, like yeah, we're just exactly. confirming a, a lot of this stuff. What bodybuilders can get away with versus I think powerlifters might, might not want to fool with, yeah. I guess. Yep. All right, good stuff. Uh, Hopefully we can tune in with Mike here, and I guess we'll just see everybody next time. That'll work. Thanks, guys. Hey there, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here. I wanted to do a very short recap on Iron Radio about the Society of Neurosports Conference. This would be just a short 10-minute kind of highlight of the conference it was two days down here in florida so i was able to attend in person which is great um, if you want more details i'll have a breakdown on the flex diet podcast of more details but huge thanks 
to all the organizers, Dr. Jamie Tartar, uh, Julius Thomas, and my buddy uh, Eric Bustilla. That it, everything was really good. The location was great. It was right on the beach. Uh, I didn't really spend any time on the beach, but it was <laughs> it was a great location. Uh, speakers were really good. Uh, again, I won't have time to go through all of them here, but uh, I would highly recommend that if you're into the crossover between neurology and exercise physiology, that I would check out the conference next year for sure. Um, so one of the speakers, again, I'm kind of biased here. This is uh, Dr. Joe Clark. He's also a faculty at the Kerrig Institute, uh, as am I. So again, that might be uh, some of my bias, but he did a very interesting talk about using the visual system around concussions. And what was fascinating is that he's published a fair amount of work. One of the big ones was at Cincinnati, they've cut their concussions by 80%. And this is with a pre-training primarily of the visual system. I thought that was like really amazing because we hear a lot of talk about um, concussions and even uh, traumatic brain injury and things in that area, and for good reason. Um, but it, there, to me, doesn't appear to be a lot of talk on uh, prevention of that. So now again, if you're lifting in the gym, your odds of that are relatively low. Uh, but I'm sure you probably have you know family friends uh, who play, your kids uh, who play sports. So briefly, he describes the eyes as doing three things. Uh, that's ocular motor, how they move, how they also stay in place. And this is also all controlled by the brain itself. So a big part of this is also what he called eye discipline, keeping your eyes where they need to be. So one of the interesting things there was in soccer players who had the ball. So he said a study that 96% of females closed their eyes right before they would head the ball. They did some uh, training on that to do it with their eyes open. And their previous rates of uh, concussions were around four per year. After they retrained them to keep their eyes open, uh, they saw that drop to one every other year. And I believe that was done almost like eight or 10 years ago. And the rate has stayed actually super low. So I thought that was super interesting. Um, in his experience, if they have someone who is post-concussion, they do have them do some exercise as soon as possible. Again, obviously, you'd have to have this cleared through your physician. Uh, it's usually going to be sub-max exercise. They're obviously going to monitor them very close. They're going to look for... Uh, symptoms, but I thought that was very interesting because there's still a lot of old information that if you get concussed, you just need to sit in a dark room and do absolutely nothing, where a lot of the newer work says that's probably not true. Again, you always want to work with a professional when you're doing that. Um, yeah, so some other uh, just uh, brief highlights here. Again, there was tons of stuff. A big overview, I would say, of the conference is the benefit on your brain of aerobic training. There's a lot of uh, areas that kept popping up related to that. Uh, part of this is with aerobic exercise, you can see an increase in hippocampal volume. Uh, this volume generally uh, decreases with age and has other associated negative neural factors with that. Super interesting talk looking at irisin, which is released from the muscle. And now there's a huge area of how myokines, these chemicals released from muscle, actually have neurologic effects. Uh, so peripheral irisin actually does cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, so we're seeing more and more data. I think there was a study looking at BDNF that was released by the muscle, obviously brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That's going to help as sort of a brain fertilizer uh, with different cognitive effects. Uh, good buddy Dave Barr, who's been on the podcast here before, did a great talk on CNS and recovery. And he made a really good point that we don't just want to recover per se, get back to baseline. We actually want to go above and beyond baseline. And that some of the things we may be doing immediately after training might be kind of messing up the adaptation that we're trying to get. 
right? So some of these examples we've talked on the podcast before, uh, possibly NSAIDs like Advil, um, even antioxidants, uh, high dose vitamin C. There's some pretty good data now taken immediately after training, probably not the best idea. And even other recovery things like cold water immersion. I'm biased because I worked on that for a course I developed. And if you do a cold water immersion immediately after exercise, especially if your goal is hypertrophy, trying to maximize muscle mass, that may not be the best idea. Again, those studies were looking at relatively cold water, 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit for relatively longer periods of time, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 minutes or longer. So just doing the short cold water exposure, probably not going to be an issue. Uh, he also talked about uh, sleep as an investment, uh, which is, I totally agree with that, and that it's probably a very catabolic time. So having a protein before uh, bed is going to be a benefit. Uh, he quoted Dr. Mike Ormsby's work, who's been on Iron Radio here before also. Um, another good talk uh, was about breathing, how we want to work to be more efficient at breathing, and that's going to help uh, everything. There's a whole series of talks on that, looking at changes in breathing, um, how that affects both mechanics and uh, biochemistry too. My bias on that is if you can nasal breathe more, I think it's going to be a benefit. But again, if you have to do all out heavy exercise, you're doing, you know, five by five on heavy squats, you want to get in as much air as you can, you know, for that period of time, you know, switching to mouth breathing may be better. Or if you're doing all out exercise, that may be better too. Uh, last one here. Uh, they did a study looking at three days of normal six to nine hours of sleep per night. Uh, they brought them into the lab, did a battery of tasks. One of them was primarily called the frustration tolerance test. They're looking at how long you'll spend on a task before you give up doing it. And they had two groups. Uh, the one group had a 60-minute nap. And the other group did not have a 60-minute nap. They watched a nature documentary film instead. They did a questionnaire. They followed up with their frustration tolerance test. What they found was that the group who had a nap spent two times as long on this unsolvable task. And I thought that was super interesting. So we're seeing more data now on sleep, in this case looking at an intervention of a nap. And does that parlay into other uh, cognitive benefits? So for some clients, I found if they can't get enough sleep at night, we've done everything we can to increase their quality of sleep, then taking a short nap may be beneficial. So some data there showing that if you have a nap, you may spend longer on particular tasks in this case. Um, yeah, and the last quick one here too, this was on the cognitive benefits of exercise. This is from Dr. Matthew Collins. They did a study for 30 minutes of either a control group where they had them watch March of the Penguins. They went either for a walk for 30 minutes or they did a run for 30 minutes at 70% of their max heart rate. Uh, they then looked at this in terms of times spent on a task and kind of a cognitive battery of tests. And in this case, they're primarily looking at learning. What they found was that there was no difference in the rate of learning, but they did notice that walking and running had a long-term recall benefit. And this was, again, recall that was tested up to 48 hours later. And so they did either their intervention, the control, the walk, or the run, and then they had them do a specific cognitive task. Part of this was memorization. And what they found was the group who did the walk or the run before the cognitive task, compared to the control group, who before was just watching March of the Penguins, uh, did much better with long-term recall. So some data showing that if you really want to work on memorizing something or sharpen your cognitive tasks, doing exercise before can be beneficial. And they showed that the running was actually even a little bit better than the walking. Uh, but both were better 
than the control. So again, I think in the future, another, um, some presenters at the end did some great stuff here talking about how do you layer and timing of sports, maybe recall and learning for complex team sports. So let's say if you're looking at American football or soccer or different sports, you have to learn the plays in addition to practice and execution. So maybe we can figure out a way of timing some form of exercise. Then you spend a period of time working or memorizing or doing specific cognitive tasks and that that will helpfully increase your recall and speed your learning overall. Um, so overall, a great conference. Uh, really highly recommend if you're interested in this area, which I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, definitely check it out. Thank you so much. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.